The Way Out Podcast, episode 21. And I was paranoid from a really young age of people like knowing me and judging me and stuff like that. And I really relate to a part of the basic text that says, um, well, my first addiction was acceptance, being accepted from others. And for some reason, I just had some inkling that I wasn't acceptable as a person. So that continued for a long time. I, I picked up characteristics, but most of all, I took any chance I could to shy away from, you know, connecting with others in a real way. So learning how to do that for the first time this year is like crazy. Finally, it was like 4th of July when I was, I think, seven. I, I manipulated my mom into letting me have a cocktail, like a drink of her co- cocktail, not my own. But I remember it was like an old fashioned, it had fruit in it and it was like hard alcohol. And I, I was super depressed and had a lot of problems growing up before then. And as soon as I took a drink of her cocktail, I felt like all of the molecules in my body started to come alive and like dance. And I felt my whole body like a, like a shock of lightning hit me. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. (laughs) And oh, for like that young of a child to be, I was obsessed with alcohol. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear from Bree and her experience, strength, and hope on her journey of recovery from heroin addiction. Bree, welcome to The Way Out Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, Charlie. Thanks for having me. You need to get way closer to that microphone so we can hear your amazing radio voice. Hi. 
Um, is that close enough? That perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to do this podcast. I think it's amazing. Anytime I can uh, uh, con somebody into uh, sharing their experience, strength, and help uh, so that others might be able to identify and uh, be able to relate. And that's what this podcast is all about, sharing our stories uh, for those who are looking to uh, understand a little bit more about recovery, understand a little bit more about their recovery journey. And it's always been my experience that we learn through stories and we learn through other people. And so mm-hmm. we're about to learn a whole lot. So tell the Way Out podcast audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, I, I want to know, um, you know where you're from, how old you are, how much sobriety you have up to this moment. I'm, I'm going to need seconds. So if you've got that, yes. that'd be ideal. <laughs> And uh, away we go. So I'm I'm Bree. I have 11 months and some odd days. Wait. Um, and a bunch of seconds. Is that continuous? Oh, yeah. What? So nights, weekends, holidays, oh, all yep. of that. From straight. the end of Thanksgiving of last year until right about the beginning of Thanksgiving this year, I've been clean. That's absolutely 100% amazing. So where were you born? And tell me a little bit about how, what life was like for Brie growing up and coming of age. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up in a small town in uh, Michigan. And it was square mile, less than a thousand people. So everybody knew each other. <laughs> My dad was the mayor for Are you 17 me? years. So no. I was like... Uh, Everybody knew who I was, right? Right. You were the mayor's daughter for the love of all that's holy. Wow. It was it was wonderful (laughs) until I got to the point when I noticed that, you know, other people had opinions and 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 I was paranoid from a really young age of people like knowing me and judging me and stuff like that. And I really relate to a part of the basic text that says, um, well, my first addiction was acceptance, being accepted from others. And for some reason, I just had some inkling that I wasn't acceptable as a person. So that continued for a long time. I can totally relate to that, that feeling that we don't belong that we're mm-hmm. apart from that regardless of where I am or what I'm doing, I just don't feel like I quite belong. And that's a painful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, I had so many excuses to belittle myself. And, and a lot of people had a lot of excuses to push me away, too, because I, you know, I, I know what it feels like to grow up as an addict and in a addictive family too. Like I'm Irish and God bless you. So alcohol is like on the mantelpiece. It was like the center of our household. So I, I picked up characteristics, but most of all, I took any chance I could to shy away from, you know, connecting with others in a real way. So learning how to do that, for the first time this year is like crazy. So from a very young age, you are already putting on 
a face that you think is going to be acceptable for no. general consumption and, uh, and, and feel like it's dangerous if people really know who you are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're growing up and you're not feeling like you're a part of, you're apart from. When do drugs or alcohol become part of the mix? Oh, man. Um, I, I was always really jealous of my parents because they were kind of like me, like uptight, paranoid most of the time. And then they drink and, oh, my God, they'd laugh. They had friends all of a sudden. Like, they weren't worried all the time. So finally, it was like 4th of July when I was, I think, 7. I... I manipulated my mom into letting me have a cocktail, like a drink of her cocktail, not my own. But I remember it was like an old fashioned, it had fruit in it and it was like hard alcohol. And I, I was super depressed and had a lot of problems growing up before then. And as soon as I took a drink of her cocktail, I felt like all of the molecules in my body started to come alive and like dance. And I felt my whole body like a, like a shock of lightning hit me. And I was like, Oh my God, I love this. <laughs> and Oh, for like that young of a child to be, I was obsessed with alcohol. Like I thought I smelt it everywhere. I was like a hound dog. I was like, mom, I smell alcohol. Like maybe the town drunk was walking by and I'd get all excited and be like, does he have a beer? Can I have a beer? So I can a hundred percent relate to that. And I think it's amazing because there's normies out there from what I understand who, when they drink, don't get that same feeling. No. Isn't that amazing? So I always thought, so the first time I drank very similar, like, Oh my God, this is amazing. This is absolutely the way you're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. This is what I've been missing. This Why? is what alive is. Correct. This mm -hmm. is every part of my being feels alive. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I need to hide. And I don't feel pain. And I don't feel the tortured sort of <laughs> loneliness that I normally feel. And that... Uh, you were judging me, and you, if you really knew how shitty I felt about myself, right, uh, then you would definitely not want to be my friend. And You just want to give me a hug and then get away. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. So you feel this 100% uh, this uh, amazing feeling. Again, normal people don't feel that way, and I didn't know that for a long time. I, I, I did not know that until I stepped foot in Hazelden, until someone was like, normal people drink beer and then they get full. Right. After two. And then they're like, <laughs> OK, I'm done. And I'm like, wait, what? Full from beer? No, it's a mind thing. It's not a belly thing. That's right. That's right. Like, right. No. I've never gotten full. No. Not once. Well, even if I was full, like that doesn't. I don't care or I wouldn't care about that and it would kill my buzz to stop. So, so no. I always felt like other people were uh, odd ducks if they didn't want to. Why wouldn't you want to drink more of this? I just don't understand. And, uh, it's uh, a game. Right. Who can drink the most? Yes. And I want to win every yes. time. Before you pass out yeah. or blackout. So you, at seven years old, you've already gotten this uh, magical feeling that many of us get the first time we drink. 
and you find yourself wanting that again, how oh, yeah. does that play out uh, throughout your childhood? Ugh, um, well, I, I wasn't, I had, I grew up in a really strict household, so I wasn't allowed to really see other people. Um, I wasn't, I never, like, I literally never went to a high school party or got to spend any time with any of my classmates outside of school. Um, and so that made my addict really angry. I was a very angry sure. child. Yeah. I can, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was all, you know, inside. inside. Yeah. Totally inside. I was trying to be perfect on the outside. But any chance I got, I would go over the top, smoke a lot of weed. I started smoking weed with someone that I had a crush on and that was like a double addiction. So that became a great part of my life from 13 on. And I, I mean, anytime I drank, I would find as much as I could drink as much as I could mix, whatever I could. Um, but most of all, it was while I was at home in Michigan, it was mostly, anything around the house that could kind of help me with all the pain inside. And that mostly was food. And, um, and it didn't work very well. Not, it, not it, nearly as well as alcohol or drugs do. Not nearly yeah. as well, but it'll work so in a pinch. I mean, I brought cookies over for I the know. love of God, you know, so it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I just like put blinders on and eat until I felt like passing out. And then I'd wake up super depressed and anxious. Never got any help for that. So I was just very unhappy and couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. Um, and so I, another one of my addictions is like work, career, that thing. So I started planning my escape at, I started taking courses at 10 years old to be a fashion designer and got into college by the time I was 15. Wow. And then by the time I was 17, I was in New York for fashion design. So at 17 years old, you're in New York. Are you by yourself? Yes, completely. Wow. From a small town in the Midwest to New York City. And of no I just, more than 100 people. If you blink, you probably miss it. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. No stoplight. No. Four bars, two churches. <laughs> just one church. <laughs> just one church, one bar. That's it. it. It's right. not even All good. Right. <laughs> so you're in New York. You're by yourself at 17 years old. I and absolutely loved it. It was like what I'd been waiting for. My addiction was to get out of the place I was in. I felt so stifled and my addiction wanted to just be able to do whatever it wanted, but I couldn't. Um, so I made that fully possible. From this restrictive sort of home where you're not able to be able to really socialize much no. and you feel really... Um, sort of contained and you moved to New York and went crazy. Wow. So tell me how that manifested. What happened? Um, I got there, acted like I owned the place, um, would do anything, take anything while still being addicted to my career. At the same time, I was able to juggle both. I know a lot of addicts that can for Absolutely. a while. Absolutely. You yep. know, yep. Yep. Functioning. Uh huh. Right. Like never sleeping. Don't care. I'm doing everything I want and I get to do all the drugs 
drink all day long, never put down anything and call it good because I'm liked by my teachers and stuff. So my parents are happy. So (laughs) I thought I had a balance there, but I didn't know everybody was worried about me. My friends would make comments like, oh, you're already drinking. Don't you know that alcoholics drink all day? And I'm like, I'm, you know, 18. I'm not an alcoholic. Like that's that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. I'm still having fun, by the way. I mean, at that at that stage, and I can uh, absolutely relate to that. At that stage, it certainly hasn't set in to a, to an extent that it is a problem. This is the solution. I knew I had problems, but I did not. I, those were still the solutions. Like, right. I wasn't having fun at home drinking. I was like just trying to get through the day, trying to get all my work done, trying to stay up late taking drugs then trying to drown out any source of uh, fear, fear of not making it, fear of my friends aren't really my friends, any of those things. Like, it was still, um, it was still the, the solution for me. So I, it wasn't even, like, my substances were my higher power, right? Absolutely. Like, from a young age, those are the only things that gave me any sort of, um, relief. Comfort. Yeah. Relief. Right. Yeah. Right. And I can totally identify with that. That was my relief. It was really the only thing that I knew that worked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At all. And there was a bunch of different kinds that could work in different ways. So. So you're 17, you're going to school and you're managing. I mean, yeah. it sounds like yeah, <laughs> the use and the and the drinking is a, is 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 excessive. But you're managing to keep the teachers happy and mm-hmm. um, and Mani- manipulating them really well. We're pretty good at that. And uh, something that you hit on, which I think is really important, is this idea that as addicts and alcoholics, and I know this is absolutely true for me, I made things my higher power. I definitely made drugs my higher power. I definitely made alcohol my higher power, but I made money my higher power. I made Mm -hmm. women my higher power. And all of them failed me eventually, Mm -hmm. some more than others. But can you relate to that, this idea that, that throughout your life, as you look back now that you're almost a year sober, how many things you ended up making your higher power? I know that my dream to be the world's best fashion designer was one of those things I was striving for and not in a healthy way, in a completely unhealthy way. And it took a long time to realize that that wasn't going to solve everything that like if I only get this, this will fix me. Oh, yeah. And it has to be the biggest, the best black or white thinking kind of thing where everyone in the world is worshiping me or I'm a total failure and I'm going to die in a pile of shit. Like that was my thinking. And it took me a lot of um, dead ends or like work without any payoff to. Well, I got paid off, but like not in the way I was looking for. I wanted this like overwhelming sense of power and gratitude and stuff. And I didn't know that that came from within. I thought it came from the world. So when I realized that I took a look at someone who had everything I wanted on the outside and they did not look happy. They had no friends or family. They had no love around them and they looked just unhappy as a person. I was like, they have everything I'm working for and this is not what I want at all. 
And that is when I kind of went downhill and it switched from that career-based addiction. So you have this moment where you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, everything I've been working for. isn't going to fix me, isn't going to be the solution for no. me. Then what do you do? I mean, it feels like now your whole world feels like, what have I been doing mm-hmm. this whole time? I thought this was the promised land. Yep. I kind of spiraled from there. I was in Italy. I decided to get this degree but not go on towards the next one and I took a job in Iowa. So that's So you go how from Italy, you go Yeah. You go from Italy. I T A L Y. Yes. to I O W A. Yes. Now they both have one two. They both have the same amount of characters, but they're very different places. Yeah. They're uh it was the town I moved to in Iowa isn't real Iowa. It's it's like India of America. It's uh, the town of Maharishi where Transcendental Meditation has a. It's a school, so it's a lot of like hippy dippy people. My kind of people. Uh huh. And there's you know there was drugs there, and I knew that. And so I took a job in sustainable fashion, but it was still a demotion from where I was heading at one point. So. I went from there to still drinking every day, not doing well on the job, to deciding that I need to move to the West Coast without a job, without a house, just on my motorcycle, and I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. This is so delusional. I got super delusional from doing drugs and drinking all the time and sleeping with anyone who I thought would make me feel better about myself to basically riding out to the West Coast, not knowing anyone out there, becoming homeless, jobless, and getting into heroin. So you move from Iowa and you've got this 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 dream that this this that you're going to go to California with literally not a nickel to your name on a motorcycle and you end up homeless? I had $500 saved up. That's not enough to start a life. Absolutely not. Not 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 in an active <laughs> addict or alcoholic's life. That's not that's not nearly enough. That's, a, still- that's that, that can be one night. I did not know I was an addict. Like, before coming into this program or going to rehab, I thought that rehab was for Lindsay Lohan and her friends. I didn't know there was multiple ones. (laughs) I thought there was, like, one in L.A. where they put the naughty girls and that's it. And then I didn't know about N.A. or I didn't really... I heard of A.A., but not... I just thought it was people that were like old men that were still drinking every day that just went in to be like, hey, I drank this much today. Like my life sucks still. You know, like that's what I thought it was about. So I didn't know I was an addict. I obviously learned when I couldn't stop using hard drugs every day. But so you moved to California. How old are you? I, I moved to Portland. Portland. Okay. And Seattle. And I went all over. I kept getting kicked out of places. I was squatting places. I was just all over the West Coast, totally unhappy. But what and was it? And you're lost. Do you feel lost totally at this time? Lost. Yeah. yeah. I I got into really bad situations like sexual abuse or sexual 
victim of assaults on while being homeless. So like within six months or even no, it was like a month within a month. I was had a job in an apartment, pretty steady, was paying all my bills, completely independent from my family and went from that to being homeless and being used by people um, completely like strung out, lost. And then now I was dealing with a lot of emotions that I never dealt with before. So we're hitting the eject button on these emotions for so long. And and I, I feel like it was a hallmark of my active addiction and alcoholism was to continue to hit that eject button over and over and over. And when really bad, awful things happen to me, whether they um, were a result of something that I did or didn't do, I, I, I used to the extent that I didn't even recognize that it really happened. Do you, does that yeah. does that make sense to you? Do you relate to that? This this idea that I can't even <laughs> begin to accept that these things are even happening to me. Like I knew exactly what happened to me, but it took until I talked to you know therapists to really be honest with myself and saying, I know what this person did to me. I know it wasn't anything I did wrong. Um, but at the time, I just ran away. I'd moved to a different city, not really move because I was already homeless, but I would just pick up, go to a different city, try and make new friends and not talk about it. And not share that with anybody else. So, you know, this 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 part of you now becomes sort of this Jekyll and Hyde type of situation where, you know, you've got these things that uh, are either are inside of you from a very young age that we already don't want to show that Mm -hmm. we're already slamming that eject button over and over and over again. And it becomes a for me, it became so automatic Mm -hmm. when feelings would come up that I would just slam them bastards right back down again with whatever I had to slam those bastards. And when other things would then create more turmoil, more pain, then the eject button just had to get hit even more. Mm -hmm. How did that end up for you? I mean, you're hitting this eject button over and over and you're using and you're going from place to place and um, the to have to survive something as awful as uh, sexual abuse. I can't even imagine how that must have absolutely 100% been like gasoline to a fire at that point. And oh, yeah. really, really fueled this need to escape. I, uh, I ran into someone that I'd met previously in Iowa and it was a man. I attached myself to him very I became very codependent on him for feeling safe. Um, And within, I think, a month, we were running to get heroin every day. So I... And you find yourself crossing these lines. Did you make lines in the sand? Like, well, at least I'm not doing this. At least I'm not doing that. Uh At least I'm not doing this. And, And you find yourself crossing these lines and... 
you have, did you have these little moments of clarity where you knew this is not good? It took a while for me to have those moments of clarity because uh, I was so delusional by that state. I was in such a state of delusion then. I didn't really have those lines in the sand. I did previously in my life, but by this time, like you said, gasoline to a fire, I was on. Right. It's, it's, on. it's on. I'm an addict. I don't care. I'm going to die this way. I, I give up. Basically, yep. I gave my all to my addiction from that point on, and there was no stopping me. I, you just swallowed up now. I just completely, I did everything and anything, stole everything we needed, didn't even feel remotely bad for it. I was, I must have been very angry and not aware of it because I, like I said, was on fire. And that mix of pain and that mix of anger and the things that were inflicted upon you along the way sent you spinning out of control. This is how we die. Mm -hmm. This is how we die. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining you in this space in California, in Portland, moving from place to place, feeling like you have absolutely no control and all you know is that you need to feel better somehow. You just need to get out of you. Mm -hmm. You just need to get out of you. Just need to get out. What what happens? We're a year sober. What happens from California? You you're deep into a heroin addiction, which more people than not don't survive. Mm -hmm. They just don't survive that. How do you how do you get yourself out? What happens? I um I did finally have a moment of clarity or a couple moments. Um I know that my breathing stopped a couple times. I didn't look at it then. I still was shoving stuff down. But um, about, I think, like a year into being a junkie, I we started to want to quit and didn't know about any of the things available. So started getting uh, Suboxone off the street, and within a year's time... Um, trying to quit, I think I quit 40 times, withdrew, got back on, withdrew. Like, I didn't know all this stuff I was holding back emotionally would come up after withdrawing physically. I didn't know it's an emotional disease, just like a, a physical disease. So I would get over the physical withdrawals and be like, hey, I did this. That's and right. then all I'm the emotions would come up and I'd be like, fuck, I need drugs again. Yeah. So yeah. that happened so many times. And I had the will to quit by then. I was, you know, on fire for a while. Then I decided I hated it because too many consequences happened to me while using and I was like, I'm done. I want to quit this thing. I'm really strong person. I've done a lot in my life. I can do this. And over and over and over again, I failed. So I was pretty, pretty um, gift of desperation. I had the desperation very, my whole body was just full of it. And um Went to see my family 
for Thanksgiving. And turns out my sister-in-law is a chemical dependency counselor. We'll take a short break from Bree's story for another edition of Recovery Revealed. This week, I want to speak on an interaction I found myself in the virtual Twitter sphere. The Way Out podcast has a rapidly growing following on Twitter and provides a wonderful platform to bring awareness to the Way Out podcast's mission of sharing the miracle of recovery through the stories of those who have achieved meaningful and long-term sobriety. An anti-12-step activist tweeted to the Way Out podcast and accused us of promoting a program that, according to his unfounded statistics, has what he termed a, quote, 5% recovery rate, end quote. He went on to charge that 12-step programs are to blame for countless relapses of those who struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. I prayed and debated on whether to respond, keeping in mind the principles and traditions of the program that saved my life and countless others I've met and indeed interviewed for this very podcast. My response was that AA literature says that indeed AA claims no monopoly on recovery, rather a simple program which, if worked in earnest, leads to lifelong recovery. This was met with an even more vitriolic response, two to be exact, for which I then made the decision that any further engagement would yield nothing positive for the mission of the Way Out podcast. The issue of there being a fairly widespread charge that 12-step programs have a notoriously low recovery rate has plagued our programs for decades, despite the actual facts. In a study conducted by Alcoholics Anonymous on its own membership in 2007, found that 33% of members had sobriety longer than 10 years, 12% between 5 and 10 years, 24% between 1 and 4 years, and 31% were sober for less than a year. Other recovery therapies like CBT, which take a psychological approach of rewards and punishments to treat alcoholism, boasted a 37% recovery rate versus 49.5% in 12-step programs after a year. Dr. David Sack sums up the disparity between what can be reported as a very low recovery rate in AA quite succinctly. When you look at people just taking themselves to a meeting, the long-term abstinence rate is pretty low. But the fact is, this program works well for those who work it." End quote. That is the crux of this entire debate. Someone who walks into the rooms of AA, NA, or any other 12-step recovery program due to a nudge from the judge or a desperate family member but doesn't have an honest and sincere desire to get well, will, and I quote, relapse. Think of it like statistically measuring every single person who's gotten a gym membership and doesn't actually use it or lose weight. In fact, 80% of people who sign up for a gym membership will stop going after five weeks, and another 8% will stop at the end of 60 days. Does that mean the gym causes people to be lazy and not want to work out? No, that's absurd. The simple fact is that, as the big book states so plainly, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path which means you actually have to work steps and want to be sober in order to recover. Now back to part two of our interview with Brie. I'm a visual person. I thought I was like a dinosaur that got lost in a tar pit. 
and got like hooked and dragged out of it and I felt like this black stuff was oozing out of every muscle, every tendon. Um, that's, I don't know, like that's, that's the visual that I put with it. Like I was just like this really old, like dead dinosaur that like got hooked out of a tar pit and had to deal with all of that tar leaving We were withdrawing in our house, couldn't get any dope, and he, I was just, you know, in the fetal position on the couch, like, I'm gonna make it through, I'm gonna make it through, like, it's gonna, I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'm in a ball and I hate everything. And he told her, he was like, we're, we're heroin addicts, we don't know what to do, but we're, we've been trying to quit and uh, we just don't know what to do. So she came in and confronted me and said, I've got opiates upstairs. If you would call your entire family and admit who you are, I will give them to you. I was so desperate to get one more that I would... Have done anything. Done anything told my strict, judgmental parents that I am a junkie just for one more. So ye, if anybody is wondering, and I've never experienced heroin addiction, although I've experienced alcohol addiction, and if anyone's wondering what the withdrawal is from heroin, it, from what I've learned, it is absolutely 100% the most horrible withdrawal from any drug. I think that, or I, I'm a visual person. I thought I was like a dinosaur that got lost in a tar pit and got like hooked and dragged out of it. And I felt like this black stuff was oozing out of every muscle, every tendon. Um, that's, I don't know, like, that's that's the visual that I put with it. Like, I was just, like, this really old, like, dead dinosaur that, like, got hooked out of a tar pit and had to deal with all of that tar leaving my body. And when we get sober, and I have had many, many times where I quit for a little while and got through the withdrawal... And for me, I didn't even know it was withdrawal, by the way, because I was in such denial. I didn't think I was at that point, but it absolutely was. Then those feelings come up and they're unmanageable. Like, I can't deal with this. I can't. They're so powerful. They're they're debilitating. Yeah. It's absolutely debilitating the intensity of the feelings that come up that it, it, it paralyzed me. I didn't even know how to function yeah. in regular life. How and I, I, without something else, there was no way that I was able to stay sober. I couldn't do it. You had that gift of desperation, that amazing gift of desperation. That if we're lucky enough, if we're fortunate enough, we're able to get that gift of desperation. And you have a chemical dependency counselor in your family. Yeah. And to me, that screams God to me. That's just like, you know. God put her in my life. My brother married her for a reason. Yeah. If not only to save my life, um, 
I didn't even tell her. She knew, but she knew she couldn't do anything about it unless I admitted it. And you were at the, you were in a place to be able to. Yeah, my well, the the guy I was with using for so many years um, told on us. We were withdrawing in her house, couldn't get any dope, and he. I was just, you know, in the fetal position on the couch, like, I'm going to make it through, I'm going to make it through, like, it's going to, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm in a ball and I hate everything. And he told her, he was like, we're, we're heroin addicts, we don't know what to do, but we're, we've been trying to quit and uh, we just don't know what to do. So she came in and confronted me and said, I've got opiates upstairs if you would call your entire family and admit who you are, I will give them to you. So that, the desperate, I was so desperate to get one more that I would... Have done anything. Done anything. Told my strict, judgmental parents that I am a junkie just for one more. The mayor of the town. Yeah. <laughs> Who wouldn't let Bree outside of, you know, a, a hundred square foot radius of the house. Now, yeah. I'm imagining you live in a mansion at the time and, you know, there's <laughs> servants and things. And, you know, they've he's got his, you know, uh, uh, security detail watching you constantly. This is how I've imagined this in my brain. So that's amazing. And you've got, you know, um, uh, uh, a... Uh, um, a, a debonair look about yourself and all you want to do is escape. So you tell dad and mom that you're a junkie. Mm -hmm. how, did, what, how did they react? How did they, they respond? Really angry. Luckily, it was on the phone, so I was safe. <laughs> and really, luckily, my sister-in-law... Uh, what's it called? Mediated the conversation. So she took the blame. She took that anger for me. She told me what to tell them. Um, and she was on the phone with them, consoling them. She's going to be fine. No, don't come down here right now. She, like I've got it. We're going to get her help. Uh, she wants help. And, uh, she facilitated this entire thing and, um, within five minutes had a bed for me at Hazelden cause she interned there. Wow. So, so it was, that is my miracle. That's a miracle. Like that is a hundred percent. There's no, there's no, absolutely no way uh, around that. You come from a place where you were at death's door and you within a short period of time you end up in a bed at Hazelden you've got no idea at this point what recovery is like you you I uh, think Lindsay Lohan's gonna be there yeah and were you upset when she wasn't no I didn't okay. know how many normal people were gonna be there <laughs> I was like what like there's people like me here that doesn't right. make sense. Right, right. So, and I, I'm a I'm a uh, Hazelden alum as well. So I definitely identify with uh, uh, Hazelden being absolutely one of the best treatment centers uh, in in operation. What was your experience like there? I uh, it was it was craziness. Were you one of those like <laughs> fuck you? 
um, I'm not an addict. Fuck you. No. Or you had surrendered before oh, you got there. I surrendered the, I surrendered before yeah. I got there. Cause yeah. I got there alone. Honestly. Um, I didn't know that this was weird that I had to fly back to Seattle where I was living from my sister's house, keep using, um, my parents were scared to death I was going to die. And, you know, my sister was like, she's not going to die in two days. She's just <laughs> going back to pack a bag. Go get the doctors like, but okay that's a rare, go. that's a real fear. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You could go off the rails. I could, they yeah, were yeah. so worried. Yeah. And you know what? I got to Ignatia, the like intake of Hazelden, and I was literally almost dead. I had no clue. Like one more hit, I would have died. And I have it to look at. Like, I, I look at my picture that they took at intake every day because it inspires me. And I know that my normal high or even like 12 hours after getting normally high, I was at such a level where I was dead any minute of any day coming soon. So... It really was, thank God I had the will. I really wanted it for even before I got to Hazelden. So they didn't have to teach me to want to live. I wanted to get clean. I didn't know how, and I was willing to learn. So You just wanted to get better. I just wanted to get better. I didn't want to but be you like didn't that know anymore. How. Yeah, I didn't know how. And that's such a helpless place to be. You're in this place, and I've been there, where you just want to get better, and you just want to feel better. You just want to feel good again. Somehow, some way, and you don't know how, and you're in this place where you can't quit, but you can't continue to use anymore. And only people that have been there uh, in that, that holy hell of addiction and alcoholism can truly understand how awful a place that is, where every fiber of your being just wants to get better. Mm-hmm. But you don't know how. Yeah. And so you, feel you did like step you're one. Worse. Yeah, you did, did step one. I like did. you're already doing step one uh, by the time you're admitted into Hazelden, mm-hmm. and you've got people that are they telling you you can get better? Are they? Is there? Is are you seeing hope yet? When do you see the hope? When do you see that I can get better? Um, I know that as soon as I got into the place, and it wasn't like a one room building that I was like hopeful and I got to be in like a kind of hospital like place and I'm like wait I'm gonna withdraw and with nurses here (laughs) like this is awesome like I mean obviously I wasn't enthused very much at the time because I was very sick but yeah I was at least a little more comfortable than doing it with you know Everybody who uses in Seattle, knowing where I live, my drug dealers being out to get me, that kind of like... That really vulnerable place where at any second you can choose to end the pain and the misery by, you know, getting some more. So I immediately felt safe. And I'd never been here before in Minnesota, and I didn't know anyone here. I'd never used here, never lived here, so that felt safe. It was nice. Let me ask you. How long had it been since you felt safe? Oh, um, probably since I was three years old. Amazing. You, 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 you said I felt safe and it just resonates in me that it felt like absolutely that that was like the first time in 
forever mm-hmm. that you actually felt safe. And what an, what an amazing feeling. Yeah. And I obviously could trust the nurses, or I felt like I could trust the nurses. And that was my first deal with trust. Yeah. I hadn't really t- trusted anyone outside myself or myself for a long time, but hadn't trusted anyone since I was about three, two. Yeah. Um, I had early trauma when I was like four years old. So, um, I learned how to trust again. And once I got a counselor and they made me cry and like, you know, like I, I I learned how to trust. I remember that aha moment where I was like, wait, the person sitting in this room doesn't really never knew me before, but all she wants to do is um help me she's got nothing against me all she wants to do is help me and she knows how to help me so holy shit this is what trust is all about like yeah. knowing that the other person isn't gonna out to get me isn't gonna hurt me doesn't want anything from you yeah doesn't want to hurt me doesn't want to do anything other than help me and once i realized that I was like, I'm going to like, I'm going to do some work in here. Like they're telling me some stuff. I'm going to listen. This is awesome. I'm safe. I can trust someone else. They're like taking me through all these weird mental things. This is great. And so you've got trauma very early on. You're exposed to trauma throughout your active addiction. And uh, you finally feel safe for the first time but uh, you know for me my mom died when I was 11 years old never dealt with it and really coped obviously with uh, a uh, a hundred lifetimes of (laughs) drugs and alcohol the but I but I had gotten that gift of desperation I'd asked my counselor you know I'm crying like a baby in the and I didn't think I was gonna um surrender you know i was i was uh, forced in by um my wife at the time and um i had no real intention of getting you know honest with myself about it you know and uh but but it came and i got this gift of desperation i'm crying like a baby and and she asked me she says well charlie what do you what do you want to get out of this deal right and i said i want to know why i'm like this I just want to know why, you know, I just want to know why. I wanted to know that all my life. Why? Why? And she's like, she kind of laughs and I'm like, <laughs> and she says, so you figured out. Say it's because your mom died when you were 11 years old. Say it's because you have the biggest, I'm an addict and alcoholic gene buttons known to man. And, you know, uh, they, they would have gotten switched on regardless. She's <laughs> like, do you think you can ever use normally again? I'm like, nope. <laughs> Do you think you can ever drink normally again? No. Should we focus on how we get better? Yes. And it was like, I've been focusing on the wrong question the whole time. It wasn't about why. It's about how. And so that was sort of like, I get it. I'm going to work. I'm going to do this deal. So you start working. You feel safe. And... Um, where's the the hope comes there are you seeing other people are you seeing other people that are recovering do you get to hear people's stories do you get to hear people that had done things and been places and felt like you (laughs) I was really gonna not go into the hope part like and then um, things got kind of hard again good 
Um, I was, you know, like I said, I was in such a delusional state before yeah. I got there that yeah. coming out of that, like you've described. What, you mean your recovery wasn't completely perfect? What? No, I'm shocked. All, all of that anger yeah. and all of that, like, why me? Mm-hmm. This happened to me came right. out. Yeah. I didn't make very many friends in treatment. <laughs> they well, didn't treat me very well. Uh, why why is peers. that? Um, I, cause I was walking around like a loony. They're like the, so one of the principles is being honest, right? They, they tell me that. And as a go getter, tenacious person who's, you know, on fire now for recovery, I'm telling everyone my life story Uh without getting to know them first. I'm telling them in detail about all the trauma that's happened to me. For the sake of honesty. And that's not how you make friends. Sure. That's yeah. not how people come to accept you. So I had to deal with that, like, not being accepted, being pushed away, people expressing their not liking me in treatment in, after... Well, you're sober. Yeah. And, and then going to a not-so-safe place again in my head and having to come back from that. So luckily I was there for three months and was able to kind of get out of my craziness state, get a hold of my emotions a little bit, get a hold of my mental capacity a little bit. But you had years of trauma and not dealing with it. And, you know, I I went to counseling for PTSD when I got sober. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds like it all came out and it, ju- it, and it didn't yeah. come out. It didn't come out pretty. Uh-uh. It's messy. Yeah. In recovery, my early recovery was messy as hell, is all hell. But there's beauty in that. Yeah. It gives me hope now because I truly did surrender. And I, I, part of me cared what other people felt, but. Most of me was just taking advice and doing what I felt was right. And so no matter how much slack or flack, whatever, no matter how many bad looks and bad comments I got from others, I kept with it and kept doing what I knew I needed to do. And that was showing courage. So... And you're being vulnerable and you're being honest and people may not be responding to it in the way that, you know, you think that maybe what we want them to respond to, but... We're all sick, too. I didn't get that. You know, right. We're all, we're all messy. It's just messy. And the first six months of recovery was a complete shit show. Yeah. And so you get through this and these feelings are coming out and they're coming out in different ways, but you're starting to be able to sort of get a, a, a get a hold on it. It's not the right word because I'm two years sober almost and I'm still not, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I still like, what is this weird feeling in my stomach? Ah, it's a feeling mm-hmm. uh, uncomfortable. I want it to go away. And my, my first response still is. I wanted to go away. Yeah. So, but, but you're letting it out and you're being vulnerable and that's amazing mm-hmm. and that's beautiful. And so you're in Hazelden inpatient for three months. Yeah. Well, inpatient for one month and then the outpatient pro or the IOP. No, 
for it's called Lily. It's like okay. the extended in, inpatient yep. where they put all of the junkies. <laughs> They're like, oh, what was your DOC heroin? Okay, okay. you're staying for three months. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I loved it, though, and in a way. It was, was it scary to get out? Was it was it? really scary to get yeah. out. I was like, can I just stay here until you hire me, right, please? Right, right. This is my safe place now. Yeah. Uh, I get to live here forever and ever and then never have to go out. Right. Yeah. And so I, I went to a sober house, and I was like, okay, so I'm going to get a job in a car within a month, and I'm going to move out. Um, that's my tenacity. Uh, so well, that and again, that's the way we are. I mean, we do everything a hundred percent. Yeah. That's the way it is. It's all or nothing, uh, black or white. Yeah. And I can absolutely relate to that in yeah. every regard. And if it's not, um, a hundred percent, then fuck it. Why is it even worth it? Yeah. I'm not going to do it. Like you tell me to go to a sober house. The people at the sober house recommend six months, but I'll do what you say. I'll go to the sober house, but I'm special. That's say, just be aware that I'm not like y'all, and I and and you know I'm gonna do this deal at about a tenth the time. Yeah, yeah right. no. So yeah. I I didn't get a job within a month. I let myself take my time. I was in IOP. I was doing yeah. EMDR for trauma. That saved my life. That's another miracle in my life. And they introduced me to DBT. They were like, "You're perfect for this," which is an amazing program. I'm still in that. So I was doing. IOP through Hazelden, EMDR, Core 12 for opiate support, and DBT, which is a whole nother thing in learning basically life skills that are proven to work. Coping mechanisms, like healthy coping mechanisms. And like by the book, like what to do. So, and I love studying, so I'm like... Great, put me in this program. That's right. Put me on a mission, and I'm good, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Give me some focus. That's right. Absolutely, absolutely. So, t- for people who don't know, what's EMDR? I've been through it. So, and it, I, I agree. It's to me, amazing. it is taking a traumatic memory which gets stuck in my frontal lobe. It is like goggles through which I see my reality, but it's you know darkened or you know it just affects my everyday life, every decision I make, and it takes it and it mimics the REM cycle of sleep that files away normal everyday um, happenings into memories. It takes it through that process and stores it where memories are supposed to be stored. So it's a memory, I can pull it up, but it pulls out all of the defects of the memory that make it really hard to cope with and it takes out all of the um the those triggers the triggers the what's the word i'm looking for uh things that just make it icky in my stomach right it takes all it takes all all the pain it takes all the for lack of a better word energy out of it that that energy and for me rewriting that memory and being those memories and there's a collective memories that uh, I would get triggered, but you're right. You look in this lens through the trauma and it affects every part of our lives. And to be able to get well, it wasn't just about my addiction. It just wasn't no. about my alcoholism. I had to I had to face that reality first before I could even hope to get well in any other way. Mm-hmm. But Hazelden allowed me the ability not only to focus on my recovery and to start to introduce principles from the 12 steps that started to get me well, 
but they also treated my PS PSTD with the EMDR, ABCD, um, <laughs> right? Um, and that's so important because a lot of us have those coexisting yes. disorders, right? whether it be major depression or anxiety, and I have anxiety, I have depression, all these things that if I don't treat those, I'm at risk. Yeah. I was in denial about having depression and anxiety, even though I have them like, I forget which one's severe. I don't really keep track, but they're both. They're both shitty. I mean, it's anxiety and depression. (laughs) I was like, I don't care what scale it is. Yeah. And like whoever diagnosed me, I'm like, oh, yeah. That makes sense. Now looking back on my entire (laughs) life, of course I have those. But thank you for making them real right. like not just something that i'm trying to push away all the time so it's it was good to take a look at the dual diagnosis like what is actually going on and how we can treat it and when we start to be able to identify and we surrender to the alcoholism or the addiction and then we uh, are able to that address it if we don't know that it's a thing then we can't you know what's the first thing and recognizing a problem understanding that there's a problem and identifying the problem if we can't Mm -hmm. identify the problem then we certainly can't address the solution and in my active alcoholism and addiction that was never the problem until that moment of surrender that wasn't the problem it was other things that were the problem right but I, i was able to correctly identify the problem which is an i'm an addict and i'm an alcoholic and i can't quit but i can't um but i can't continue to use and i'm in that place so I, I i surrender and that 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 gets me onto that path of recovery and same thing with you know my ptsd recognizing that it's a thing and then doing whatever it takes and really being serious about it the work the work that it took to be able to recover from the ptsd was just probably as much work in the beginning as my recovery was can you identify that i mean it's like a real work yeah i'm still working through it and it's it's definitely on all levels hard work just to like if i go through a memory the protocol for emdr i'm i feel like i'm hung over for a few days afterwards and i feel very drained it's a it's a real thing and and before i work on the memory i'm triggered all the time i'm in a heightened state of hyper awareness or hyper um, like sensitivity, hypersensitivity, right? trying to control everything, being afraid of like, I don't know what, like it could be just random triggers, having terrible dreams, just not functioning very well. So it takes that away, but it leaves me very vulnerable in, in its place. So yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of work, but there's a lot of self care in that, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the ability because you're working a, a program of recovery that when these things come up, you, you can put that self care in place, which is so important for us because, yeah. you know, I know for me, if I'm not practicing that self care, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a that's, that can be a problem for me. Yeah. I needed to learn how to do it. I'm still learning yeah. how to take care of myself in a real way. And it's a lifelong process. That's the beauty of it, right? Yeah. We get to, you know, one of the beauty, beautiful things about recovery is that we don't have to do it perfect. 
You know, like we can fuck up and we can, you know, let ourselves sit in a memory too long when we know we probably shouldn't Mm. or sit in a bucket of shit and depression for a little longer than we should. And we know it. But we get to learn from those experiences because I wasn't able to learn in active recovery or active addiction and alcoholism because I kept on hitting that eject button, which prevented me from being able to really learn how to cope with life. And today, because I. I've got this, um, I've got support, I've got friends in recovery, and I've got a, uh, a great sponsor that allows me the ability to continue my sobriety, make mistakes in sobriety, and then learn from them. And you find yourself in that journey? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I remember I thought I got a temporary sponsor while I was still in treatment because they, they're like, why not? Like, have one while you're in here so then you can transition out. Right. She's still my sponsor. And I had to go through learning to trust a normal person that doesn't have degrees and like, <laughs> and is in my safe Hazelden place <laughs> and has, you know, real people problems and shares their life experience. And I have to be like, you're not perfect. I don't want you. Right. And then be like, wait, oh, I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm trying to be a human now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and you're a human. And I just realized that. And uh, yeah, I'm that's just, a beautiful thing, right? Like we don't have to be perfect. We just have to, you know, uh, do the, uh, the best we can. Yeah. And any given day. And, you know, I, I think about that when it comes to, you know, working my steps or other people in the program or whatever. We're not perfect. In fact, a lot of us are sick freaking puppies, you know, oh, yeah. like for real. Um, but that's OK, because uh, the, the range of, you know, people getting well uh, uh, in the recovery is... Um, um, quite broad in terms of the spectrum. Um, you go to meetings now. You're, uh, yeah. How many meetings do you go to a week? Uh, at least three. I, I chair one. I chair my favorite meeting, and I have a service position at my other favorite meeting. And then I go to another meeting with my sponsor, and I can throw in a couple other ones I like in there. Um, so yeah, I found I found meetings I like. The fellowship. They're my friends. I see them every week, and I remember the moment realizing that, you know, these people could be in my life for, um, my entire life now. And I don't get vulnerable and cry in meetings very often. And I like started blubbering. I'm like, Oh my God. Like I looked back, (laughs) like these people could be here for another 20 years. Like, Oh, (laughs) at least one of you will still be my friend. Right. Right. And and did you feel that when, you, you know, for me, my home group, and I never connected before in my previous attempts at, um, sobriety, I never really connected. I, you know, I felt like, you know, this meeting is good for you people, but you know, it's not really my jam. But when I got that gift of desperation and I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, uh, you know, I felt like, I felt like I it was home. Like mm-hmm. I, this is, this is, these are my peeps. These are my family yeah. now. And I use them like a family. Like, yeah. uh, I, when you're talking about like sitting in a bucket of shit or yeah. thinking about a memory too long <laughs> or being in bed, reading, um, you know, Stephen King for a little bit too long <laughs> and, uh, kind of feeling a little <laughs> weird. All I need to do is go and like reach out for one of these people that are my family now. Yeah. And I feel like a hundred times better instantly. As soon as I open my mouth and let all that shit out of my head, like, that gives me relief every time. 
every time, especially like women in the program, which I so rejected for so long. I was like only friends with boys. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, I rejected the best like medicine on the planet, which is like heart to hearts with a female, Absolutely. like the person that's the same as me. So. Absolutely. And being able to identify and connect with women in the program and women that have, you know, good sobriety and strong sobriety. And for me, it was very much the same way. I was friends with a lot of women, but not a lot of guys. It just, you know, like you, what a fear or whatever. Well, yeah. And I was selfish too. Like, what, what am I going to get out of you? Like, uh, you know, Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't looked at that yet. <laughs> so, so to be able to walk before I crawl and have genuine relationships with other men in the program on a level that I have never had before in my entire life. And I love these guys. Mm -hmm. I would, I absolutely love them. And that's amazing. And we get to hug each other and, you know, I don't go to a meeting without hugging. You and know, you don't have to worry about when you're going to backstab them. That's right. Or like why I feel like I haven't gotten enough out of them, oh, yeah. you know, in order to make the friendship worthwhile. Because mm -hmm. this whole friends thing is a lot of effort <laughs> and a lot of work and I don't like it and yeah. unless I'm getting something in reward on a regular basis it ain't gonna be long in this world so and I don't expect anything from these people anymore I don't my I, I want to be able to just give to them and I want to be able to offer my my friendship mm -hmm. and that's enough for them yeah and they don't want anything from me Anytime I'm in that shitty place and I like reach out to whoever I can and the answer, it's like we end up doing just as much for each other in that yeah. moment. Like whenever I'm in a shitty place, like whoever answers me normally is in the same exact place <laughs> I am. And then we get together and then we end up laughing and being yeah. like, oh, <laughs> This felt so terrible an hour ago and I'm yeah, having no, the best fun absolutely. ever. And, 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 and. It's the first time in my life that I felt like I was enough mm -hmm. to the world, to working through the 12 steps and, and being able to uh, get that spiritual experience. I feel like I'm enough. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm the shittiest person in the world. And I don't feel like I'm the best person in the world either. You know, I yeah. used to like you extremes. I'm either a, a piece of shit or I am better than you. But I never could just be one of you. I could never just be like that. And so to just feel like I'm enough and I never felt like that. I never felt like I was enough. Can you relate to that? Yeah, I I read the just for today today and I loved it so much. And it was talking about how we used or I used to want to be someone else. And I change my mind all the time, like this or that person. I want to be this model. I want to be that person. Um, oh, I wish I could live where they do or have their cars or have that yeah. acting career or whatever. If I had this, then it would be here. Yeah. Um, but now it, it says that I can admit to myself that I wouldn't trade places with anyone on earth because what I found inside myself and that like truth and that relationship I have now, I don't want to start over. I don't want to like, I don't want to trade places with anyone because I've learned so much. And like, I, I don't know, whatever is going on internally, that spiritual feeling is more than, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't want anything else. So 
that was it was a good that is the most amazing thing in the world that you just said right there because you came from a place where all you wanted to do was escape yourself mm-hmm. for so long to the point that you were nearly dead yeah that you went I to those legs so you like, get, come on yep yep it would have been sweet relief in some ways yeah and today almost a year sober you wouldn't want to be anybody else in this entire world and that is the miracle. Right. You are a miracle. You are 100% a miracle. If you had to uh, uh, say anything that we haven't said uh, to this point to the Way Out podcast audience, all uh, 12 of them, um, what would you say? I guess that the, the, yeah, the best part of this whole thing was getting to know myself and learning how to love that love my story love everything i have to offer and um yeah i loved your story and i love that you shared it with us thank you so much thanks charlie all right thank you for being a part of the way out where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions if you would like to reach out to the show you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com that's wayoutcast all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.